uh, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. So we will be in uh, chapter 18 this morning, starting in verse 18. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you there, that's on page 877 uh, of the Bibles that we provided for you. Let me just uh, welcome you again. If you are new or new-ish to Redemption Hill, uh, we are really glad that you are here to worship with us this morning. My name is Tanner Turley. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And uh, we really have just been blown away by God's grace to us as a church. There is nothing particularly special about, uh, you know, the leadership of this church or even the people of this church beyond God's grace. And uh, so we really feel like we're riding kind of this wave of God's grace uh, here here in Medford and Greater Boston to be a light for uh, who God is and the life that he wants to bring to every person in this area uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I believe this passage that we're going to look at this morning will really help get you get a flavor not only of what Christianity is about, but also consequently what we want to be about as a church that seeks to glorify God by living out his mission as a community transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're all about here at Redemption Hill. Well, we are continuing our sermon series in the gospel of Luke. We've been looking at the mission of Jesus. And as we're going to see next week in chapter 19, there's really this key verse in the gospel of Luke. There are several kind of purpose statements that Jesus gives to say, hey, this is why I came. And in chapter 19, verse 10, he says, I came to seek and to save the lost. Okay, so, so Jesus, why God the Son, the eternal Son of God, came to earth, wrapped on human flesh, was to be on a rescue mission to save people from their sins and give them this whole new life in Christ. And today I want us to think about this idea of salvation. Okay, this, this word salvation in the Bible is so deep, so multifaceted. There are so many words and concepts and metaphors in the Bible that help us understand what salvation means for those who experience it in Christ. The Bible uses the language of adoption. It says that we've moved from being an orphan to being a child of God. Now, God is our father. We have a relationship with God because he has adopted us into his family. We were once condemned as guilty before God. This is the language of a courtroom. We were once condemned as guilty, but now God has justified us or counted us righteous because of what Christ has done for us. It's another metaphor for salvation. Uh, another one is that though we had an incalculable debt before God because of our sin, how many times we've all offended God, not live for him or live according to his will, it says that the Bible through Christ, we have forgiveness in him. That he takes this great debt that we have and he wipes it clean and forgives us and gives us this new start in him. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We who were once estranged and alienated from God have now been reconciled back to God. We who were once uh, spiritually broken have now found healing in Christ. We who were once enslaved to our rebellious ways have now been set free to live our lives for God. We who were once blind can now see. We who were once dead have now been made alive through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is all 
describing what God has done for us and sending Christ to be our great Savior. So now the question becomes, if, if all of this is true, and all people are either on one side of the fence or the other, then, then we should ask the all-important question, then how can someone be saved? This is life's most important question. And this is the question that our text exposes for us today. I mean, in light of all of the questions of life, where did we come from? Why are we here? What's our great purpose in life? This question really sums them all up and explains them all. So what I want us to see this morning as we study Luke 18 is that salvation comes to those who see the worth of Christ, who receive his mercy, and who follow him. Okay, salvation comes to those who see the worth of Christ, receive his mercy, and follow him. Salvation in the Gospels is really synonymous with truly following Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our lives. And so what I want to do this morning is give you two encouragements on what our lives should look like as we seek to follow Christ. Okay, the first is this. Follow Christ with absolute commitment and experience his rich rewards. Follow Christ with absolute commitment and experience his rich rewards. Look in verse 18 of chapter 18 of the Gospel of Luke. It says that a rich ruler comes up to Jesus and asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, here is the question of our text. This most all-important question. This ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the same question we saw back in Luke chapter 10 with, with this lawyer who wanted to make sure he was good with God. He says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, you know the commandments. What are the greatest commandments? And Jesus, he, he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, hey, this is true. Go do this and you will live. And it says that he wanted to justify himself. So he says, well, who is my neighbor, Jesus. And Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, right? That, that actually everyone is our neighbor. We should display God's love to all people. Well, we find this question surface again here in verse 18. And in the dialogue that will unfold, Jesus is going to teach us two really important truths about eternal life. The first one beginning in verse 19 and following is that eternal life in Christ will cost you everything. Eternal life in Christ will cost you everything. This is what Jesus begins to do in verse 19 by, by first exposing how shallow of an understanding this ruler had of goodness. He, he does this first by saying, no one is good except God alone. Now, because of our understanding of Christ, we might imagine that Jesus says this with a twinkle in his eye. Why is that? Because Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God, incarnate goodness, standing before the ruler, and he says, why do you call me 
good. No one is good except God alone. And all the while, he knows I am God standing before his eyes. I am eternal and everlasting goodness. But he leads the ruler to see his lack of goodness by pointing to the goodness of God. And why is this? Is because God alone is unique in his holiness, in his perfection, in his righteousness. And it's only against the backdrop of God's moral purity and perfection that we will begin to see that we are not that perfect, nor are we that good. So, you may be here thinking, man, I am a pretty good person. Or we use this language all the time, right? Oh, she is such a great person. He is such a great person, a good person. And I'm not trying to be, you know, this kind of theological nitpicking pastor or whatever. But at the end of the day, I know we all know what we mean by that, right? Oh, they're a good-hearted person. They, you know, they're nicer than most other people. But when we compare ourselves and place ourselves before God, there is really no one good because no one meets the standard that God has set for us, which is himself. And so it's when we see that our goodness is not that good that we actually place ourselves in the position to receive his goodness and mercy. This is the beauty of the gospel. And he does this another way. He exposes the shallow understanding of, of goodness in this man by then expo exposing him to the Ten Commandments. So he tests him by the Ten Commandments in verse 20, and he says, you know the commandments. He goes on to list uh, the fifth through the ninth commandment, not in, in particular order. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. All of these commandments relate to our relationships with people. And, and the, the ruler hears this, and, and he's feeling pretty good about himself because in verse 21, he says, Jesus, all of these I have kept from my youth. So, so uh, in light of these commandments, although his answer and response was quite presumptuous, he thinks, man, I have tried to be a good person, so if this is the standard, then I'm in pretty good shape. Now, from our understanding of, of, of God's standard. And, and by what Jesus says in the Gospels, that it's not just keeping the letter of the law. Yeah, you've never cheated on your spouse or you've never, you know, murdered anyone. I mean, the, the, the expectation that God has for us cuts much deeper than that actually gets to our heart, right? So Jesus goes on to say, hey, if you've looked at a woman lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery. If you've had anger sinfully in your heart, you've already murdered someone. So the standard is much higher than this ruler is, is holding himself to. But interestingly, Jesus does not just go on and really interrogate him. Hey, what about four weeks ago, you know, when you broke that, that sixth commandment? And what about, you know, th you know, when you were a kid and you failed to honor your mother and father again and again and again? You know, Jesus doesn't do that, but he does something much more drastic in verse 22. It says there, Jesus heard this and he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. These five words on the lips of Jesus are very heavy words to this ruler's ear. One thing you still lack. 
And what Jesus is doing here is he is exposing his idolatrous heart before God. He wants the ruler to see that, in fact, he has broken the commandments. He's broken the 10th commandment because he's so covetous and he's so uh, self-absorbed and greedy with his wealth. And more than that, the, the, the greatest offense of this ruler is that he has broken the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, a, a failure to keep any of the the, the Second through the 10th commandments is really a failure to keep the first commandment, which is to love God above everything else. Because whenever we commit any sin, it is actually a failure to worship God and to serve him as the ultimate Lord of our lives. And so you might imagine that the rich young ruler kind of has this big gulp in his throat, right? He, he, he has this, oh, no, he didn't just ask me to give up all of my riches kind of moment here because we find out that he was a man of great wealth. Verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad. It, it literally means he was very grieved for he was extremely rich. So, so what Jesus is doing here is he wants the ruler to see that while he thinks that he has lived his life for God, while he thinks that he is actually loving God by keeping his commandments, in reality, he has not worshipped God with his life because he hasn't kept all the commandments. In fact, he has broken the very first one. And he has done so with his money. This was the, the idolatrous point in the heart of the ruler. It says that he was so wealthy, he was extremely rich, that he was very sad when Jesus asked him to hand over his idol. Say, so what is an idol, Tanner? An idol is, is anything that we take in life. And most of the time, they are the good things that God has given us. And we take these good things that God has made and handed over to us, and we make them ultimate things in our lives, where they become this controlling influence. They have a God-like influence and God-like function in our lives. So listen, the, the, the idol for the ruler was money. He was loaded, and he loved his riches, so the idol for him was money. I don't know what it may be for you, but it could be any number of things. It could be relationships. It could be pleasure. It could be the pursuit of, of you know, uh, intellectual credentials. It could be your work. It could be a particular hobby that you hold up and, and it begins to have this godlike influence. You see, money for him had, had become basically his creator. It made him who he was. It defined him. Money had become his Lord. It controlled how he lived his life. No, I'm not going to follow you, Jesus, because I want to keep my wealth and, 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 and do what I want to do with my life. Money might have controlled him to, to take a certain job over against another just because of, of the bottom line there. Money can have a, 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 a sense of security for us, a sense of, 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 of refuge of significance, of meaning, when we find in the Bible that God made us, that we might find all of those things ultimately in him, that he is our refuge, he is our security, he is, uh, we find our purpose and significance and value in him and in him alone. 
And so with this very difficult call to sell all he has and to give it to the poor, Jesus is asking this ruler to have the idolatry of his heart ripped out from him that he might be freed up to worship God with his life. So what is it for you? Do you you have something in your life that you pursue and you treasure and you value more than God? Whatever that thing is, whatever you hold up as ultimate, that has in reality become an idol for you. And what Jesus does with our idols, very graciously, he says, hand them over. Give them to me so that you might find true life, true satisfaction, true meaning, true security, true purpose, true peace in me. So we see that this rich ruler is faced with a dilemma. He loved his riches more than he loved God. And as we see this story unfold, it it forces us to ask the question, is there anything that hinders us from absolute commitment to Christ? Perhaps you are exploring Christianity today and you say, you know what, I mean, Christ following him, it it sounds pretty good, it sounds pretty reasonable, and, and you know what, I would do that if but not for this one thing in my life that I just cannot give up. It may be the approval of others. It may be, you know, the the thoughts of how family would respond if you decide to, you know, get radical for Jesus and follow him and, like, read the Bible and crazy stuff like that. I mean, you know, so, so what is it for you? What hinders you from coming to Christ? Is there a great barrier in your life that's holding you back from following Christ? See, the rich young ruler says to Christ by his actions, Jesus, you really aren't worth it. But how does Jesus respond? Jesus in verse 24 then says this. It says, Jesus looking at him with with sadness, or, or some people say seeing him with his sadness, says this, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So let's just get a couple things straight. Number one, Jesus does not hate the rich, okay? Jesus loves the poor. Jesus loves the rich. This is not a statement against rich people. It's just a statement of fact that those who have a lot of material wealth and and what some people call creature comforts, okay? We just, you know, we, we have enough in life that we aren't too uncomfortable with, you know, our surroundings. He says, for, for those people, this is just the reality. They have no physical needs, and so they assume that they have no spiritual needs before God. So Jesus doesn't hate the rich, but he is exposing that they don't, typically see their need for God. And by the way, this is step one in coming to the kingdom of heaven and inheriting eternal life. We have to see our need before God. Until we see our need, we will never come running home and receive the love that God extends to us in Christ. So Jesus says, 
It's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say, in this classic hyperbole in the Gospel of Luke, he says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that? What Jesus does here is he takes the largest animal in Palestine and he takes the smallest instrument that would have been used on a daily basis, and he creates an impossibility. He says, it is impossible, you know this, um, to take, for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. It's just impossible. And he says, this is typically what it's like for a rich person to seek to enter the kingdom of God. And with this, the disciples are absolutely shocked. We find in verse 26 that they change the conversation. It's almost a, a note of despair or discouragement. They say, well, then Jesus, who then can be saved? If, if rich people cannot be saved, if, if in fact added to that moral people who are loaded with riches, if, if these moral rich people cannot be saved, then who can be saved? You see, they were asking this because they thought that Number one, morality, keeping the law, was, was, was the ticket into heaven. But beyond that, they thought that riches were a sign of blessing from, from God. So we've seen this in the Gospel of Luke again and again and again. Those who have riches appear to be blessed by God, so surely their ticket is punched into heaven. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how it works. And they are shocked. They are amazed by this. But what Jesus then does is he steps in with words of hope in verse 27. These are awesome words for us this morning. He says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. What is impossible with men is possible with God. So in other words, God can do the impossible God can take very rich people, materially rich, and he can still show them their great need that they have for him. And what God can do in that moment is God can work a miracle of salvation in that person's life. But you know, this is once again true for all of us. At some point, we go from not seeing our need for God to being awakened to the reality that we have a great need for God. And every single time that happens, the Bible says that's a miracle. A miracle takes place every time someone who was dead becomes alive, who was blind becomes one who is able to see. And so what we learn here from Jesus, this is a good practical here, what we learn from Jesus is that we need to pray for the miraculous to happen every time we come to worship. I mean, anytime the word of God goes forth, the word shines the light of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, so that people might come to see how great God is, how good God is, how perfect God is, how we have all fallen short of his glorious standard, and how that he has made a way for us in Christ to receive this life and salvation that comes through Christ alone. And every time this happens, it's a miracle. So we should pray for the miraculous, whether we are coming here on Sunday morning or whether we are opening up the Bible and sharing it with a coworker or a neighbor. You know, 
I once thought I could be good enough, which is the popular notion still around here, basically in this area. You say, you know what? I found out that I wasn't so righteous before God. But Christ is my righteousness. How will I get into heaven? Not on my own merit, but on the merit of Christ, on the work of Christ, on what he has done for us through his perfect life and substitutionary death and glorious resurrection. This is what gives us life, Jesus Christ. So all of this is going on, and you have the uh, kind of loudmouth disciple Peter is processing all of this information, right? And he's, he's hearing this, um, you know, hey, no one is good but God alone. So, hey, have you kept the commandments? Well, I think I've done a pretty good job at that. No, not, not quite. One thing you still lack, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, da-da-da-da-da. And Peter's over here processing, right? He's thinking about this, and he's saying, you know what? This, this sounds familiar, because Jesus, when we were, you know, fishing uh, on the, the sea, Jesus called to us and he said, leave everything, leave your nets, leave your families and come and follow me, be my disciples. And so Peter pipes up in verse 28. He says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Basically, to p- p- paraphrase this, Peter says, hey, Jesus, what about us? What about us, man? We left everything to follow you. What does that mean for us? Are we in? Are we good? Have we received this salvation? And what does Jesus say? These are like two of my favorite verses in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Are you ready for this? Who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. This is the good news of the gospel. Eternal life will cost you everything, but eternal life in Christ will also give you everything. Jesus calls us to follow him, to let nothing stand in our way, that we would be willing to say, you are the greatest, you are our greatest treasure. I will follow you in Anytime we do that, anytime we take up our cross, die to ourselves, and say, you know what? I'll give a little more of my time, not for my own selfish pleasure, but for you. Every time we say, you know what? My, my wife, my kids are not my greatest treasure in life, but you are. He says, every time we make this commitment to follow Christ in such a radical way, he says that you will be blessed, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. So here's an encouragement for us this morning. Let's not reduce Christianity to a, a place far off in the skies that is kind of full of every good thing that we could imagine. Now, now heaven is a place, and we know that God will send Christ to return, and he will establish the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell and be with God forever. And it is completely unimaginable what we will experience in the presence of God where Psalm 16 says there is fullness of joy and pleasures at the right hand of God forever. I mean, we cannot get past that. In fact, that should just fill us with a lot of life and joy and excitement because that awaits everyone who decides to follow Christ. So if if that's all we receive is eternal life with God forever, 
to be with him, to dwell with him, which is why he created us in the first place, that's a really good deal, okay? Like, that is, that is enough for me. I'm in. But Jesus says, not just in the life to come, but you will receive many more times in this life also. So, so if you follow Christ with your life, then, then Jesus says there are so many blessings that you will receive. Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. So if you're a child of God, then you have no lack. You have everything you need. You have peace and joy and, and, and love that, that is just really unexplainable. And so Jesus says, look, even, even though the cost is great, the reward is so much greater if you will choose to follow me with your life. And so sometimes I just ask myself these questions. What, God, what would happen? What would happen if everyone at Redemption Hill understood what it looks like to follow Christ in this way, say, God, you are, you are above everything in my life. I will sacrifice anything for you that I might live for your glory. I mean, what, what happens if we do that? I mean, I think we are doing that. I think it is happening. But, but what happens if that, that continues to grow, continues to mature? More and more people are coming on board saying, I follow Christ in this kind of way. I'm telling you, our lives will not be the same. Our church will not be the same. Our city will not be the same. Because God's transforming power is just that awesome at work within us. So to follow Christ requires an absolute commitment, but with it because come the, the immeasurable rich rewards of knowing Jesus and following him. But then now in verses 31 to 43, we have a second encouragement that, 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 that really teaches us more about following Christ. Okay, so the second encouragement for you this morning, follow Christ with spiritual sight and lead others to glorify God. Follow Christ with spiritual sight and lead others to to glorify God. Read, read verses 31 to 4 uh, with me. It says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So Jesus, in verses 18 to 30, speak of the sacrifice that, that is required of all who would follow him. He said there are going to be some sacrifices involved, just as he's told us again and again and again through the Gospel of Luke. Now he is saying, you know what, though? I am going to show you what it means to pay the ultimate price, to, to be the ultimate sacrifice. I am going to Jerusalem. He's told them this again and again and again. In fact, this is the sixth time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus foretells his death, saying, I am going to be handed over to the Romans, and I will be flogged, beaten, spit upon, killed, 
and I, I will also rise again on the third day. And so Jesus says, look, this will fulfill all that the prophets said would be accomplished. What does that mean? The prophets here are really the, the whole Old Testament. We will see that in Luke 24. It says that, that, that everything is written in the prophets. And he says, beginning with Moses and the Psalms and, and on through, we, we find that again and again and again, the, the Old Testament is pointing to promising a coming Savior, a coming Deliverer, a coming Messiah. Genesis 3. Satan will, will bruise the heel of Christ, but Christ will crush his head. He will deliver us, have victory over sin, Satan, and death. Psalm 22, go read it after church. A beautiful psalm depicting the crucifixion uh, and I believe the resurrection of Jesus there, pointing to that. Isaiah 53 is one we've read before recently. Such a good uh, passage on the coming uh, suffering Savior. But, but listen to the words of Isaiah 50, verses six through the first part of eight. This, this describes what we find here in verse 32. It says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. So the prophets are foretelling the, the coming suffering of the Messiah. The prophets are foretelling how he will be crucified, given up. But I think right here we see even the vindication of God that is coming, pointing to the resurrection that's going to take place. The prophets are telling them of this. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is trying to prepare his disciples to say, hey, this is going to come and forgive the colloquial language, but you don't need to be kind of freaked out by this, okay? Because this was plan A from the very beginning. He wants the disciples to have a heads up because they, they were expecting, what, this Messiah who would be a triumphant ruler, who would establish the kingdom in the here and now. And Jesus says, look, I am going to win the kingdom through suffering. So he wants the, the disciples to understand this. This was not some improvised plan. This was the plan from the very beginning. In verse 34, Luke is telling us that, that the disciples just didn't understand. Three different ways he says this. They understood none of these things, number one. They, this saying was hidden from them, number two. And they did not grasp what was said, number three. I mean, they just say again and again and again. They did not get it. They did not get it. They did not get it. They did not have eyes to see what was coming. But Jesus tells them this again and again and again so that when it happens, they can look back and they can say, oh yeah, Jesus told us. He warned us. He foretold us again and again and again. But then interestingly, when we get to verse 35, we, we find someone who not only doesn't have spiritual sight like the disciples, but, but actually one who can't see with his physical eyes, okay? So we're going to find that, that he can't see with his physical eyes, but it's actually his spiritual sight is, is pretty good. And so let's, let's read these verses together. It says, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So here we have, at the end of Luke 18, the last kind of miracle proper, if you will, in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Mark tells us this blind man's name was Bartimaeus. What a cool name. All right, I'm not gonna call him Bart, but perhaps we could. Okay, so Bartimaeus was a blind man, and this was probably like any other day for a blind man. He positioned himself on the outskirts of the city where people would have been traveling, and it was customary in in, in Jewish culture to give alms, to, to help the poor. And so you can imagine that day by day by day, he would find himself at this roadside begging, just hoping that people would drop him some change or give him a slice of bread. But he hears something different about this day. We understand that those who have maybe one sense impaired in this life often have a heightened sense in in another area. And so he hears the crowd and the, the ruckus going on and he knows that there is something different about this day. So he asks, man, what is going on? And some people tell him, hey, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now we know that he must have been a great listener so he had probably heard the reports of, of who Jesus is and the, the miracles that he would bring to people. And so you, you might imagine that Bartimaeus says, hey, this is my chance. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And this marginalized blind man you know, has some people in front of him who basically say, look, man, be quiet. Jesus doesn't have time for you. You're not that important. Why don't you just be quiet, Bartimaeus? But Bartimaeus is not going to be stopped. This is what I love about Bartimaeus. He, he shouts out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So, so for, for Bartimaeus, let's get this straight. Jesus is not Jesus, just Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the son of David. This is messianic language. Go back and read 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. That, the, the, that there would be a forever king from the line of David who would rule over the house of Israel forever. Justice and righteousness would be the foundation of his throne. And so this coming Savior would, as the prophets foretold, as Jesus says in Luke 4 and in Luke 11, would give sight to the blind and, and cause the deaf to hear and the lame to walk and the good news would be preached to the poor. And so Bartimaeus knew this. He said, this is my chance. And, and then... In verse 40, we find these amazing words. It says that Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. Where was Jesus going? I mean, do you think that Jesus might have had some some other things on his mind? He is about to go be flogged and beaten and spit upon and die for the sins of the world. And yet we see the radical other-centeredness in the heart of Christ because he takes time to stop. Who's calling for me? Bring him over. And what we learn in this is that faith, the same faith that caused 
Jesus to marvel in Luke 7 with the faith of the centurion causes Jesus to stop in his tracks. Bring this man over. What would you like for me to do for you, Mr. Blind Man? Lord, I want to see. I want to see. This is a beautiful picture of salvation. Why? Because just like we saw last Sunday with the tax collector, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Salvation comes to those who have a need and they see their need and they cry out to mercy from God. So if you need Christ, if you need salvation, if you need to be adopted, if you need to be reconciled to God, if you need to be redeemed, if you need to be set free, if you need to see and be made alive, there's nothing fancy that you have to do. You just say, God, be merciful to me. God, I'm blind. I want to see. God, I am dead in my sins. I want to live. And so have you done this? Have you cried out to God and experienced his salvation? This was the result of the response. I mean, what we see in verses 42, when when he, he says, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. This phrase, made you well, is the same word in verse 26 for who then can be saved. He is he is saved, he is made well, he is healed. Not only physically being able to see with his physical eyes, but he is healed in his heart, being made new, having sight with his spiritual eyes that Jesus is worth following with his life. And that is the response. Verse 43, it says, immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him glorifying God. So, So this is what we need to happen for us. When when we see our need, we need God to give us spiritual sight so that we might worship him and follow him with our lives. I want to read 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6 for you. This is what Paul explains. Okay, so don't miss this. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by an open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Okay, so basically Paul's just saying, hey, look, whatever God says, that's what we try to say, which is exactly what we try to do at Redemption Hill. Now verse three, here's the, here's the problem, here's the issue. And even if our gospel is veiled, and sometimes it is veiled to people, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So so people who don't embrace Christ as Savior, the Bible says they are spiritually blind. They don't see. They can't see yet with their spiritual eyes. So what has to take place? Well, a miracle has to take place, and it is God shining his light into our hearts. Verse six, let me read it for us. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. This is an allusion to Genesis one, when he spoke the world into existence, speaks light into existence. Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Is this deep enough for you here? So what happens when the word goes forth is that that God shines the light of his word and the spirit of God 
opens our eyes to see, gives us new life in Christ, that we might have the sight of the glory of Christ so that we would desire him above all else and we might follow him, gladly giving away everything else that we might follow him. This is what happens for Bartimaeus. Jesus is worthy. The rich man said, you know what, Jesus, you're great and all, but you're a nice teacher. I might be able to learn a few things from you, but you're not worth following with my life. But this is not what Bartimaeus says. Jesus, you are so worthy. You are so valuable. You are such a treasure that I will gladly give everything to follow you. And here's the beautiful part. When we do this, okay, when this happens, when we give our lives away for the sake of Christ and follow him in the road of discipleship, then we have the privilege of glorifying God to the point that others begin to see and begin to hear and to begin to ask us questions. And we have the opportunity to tell them of the difference that Christ makes in our life. (laughs) So, There is a call, an implicit call, a provocation, if you will, to missions. Because when we get this, when when the scales have come off of our eyes and we see Christ, we see the glory of Christ, and we decide to follow him and we glorify God with our life, then hopefully the same result is true for us as it was for Bartimaeus in verse 43 when it says, when people saw it, when they saw him following Jesus and glorifying God, this once blind man who can now see, it says that they gave glory to God. And so this is the great privilege of our lives as Christians. Not only do we get to experience salvation, which there's nothing better than knowing God in Christ and having this great salvation, but we also get to tell other people about it, that they might experience the same kind of many more times in this life and in the life to come kind of blessings in Christ. So today, we are going to commission 12 people who are going to surrounding states and even to other parts of the world to say, hey, I am a follower of Christ and I am going to tell other people of the difference that the gospel can make in our life. And we applaud their their willingness and their commitment to go. We're going to pray for them today. But let me just suggest this, that it doesn't, it doesn't, take, okay, we are called to go across the globe, and hopefully we all will do that and give our prayers and our dollars and even our lives to go at times, it's short term or long term, it doesn't matter, to, to give our lives for the sake of the nations, but here's, here's the good news, we can be missionaries right here where we are, right? Every single day, whether we're in the workplace, man, it's summertime after all, is anyone loving this weather, man, I got a little sun on my face, I've been outside enjoying soaking up the rays, you know what I'm saying, I'm not laying out, okay, just chill out guys, but um, you know, it's just... It's so beautiful outside. I mean, it's a great time to initiate in conversations with others that they might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray and we're going to sing a song. It's, it's called Rain in Us. I love this song. And the, the, the chorus at the end or the bridge or whatever it is, Mike can teach me about that later. It, it says, so rain, please rain in us. Come purify our hearts. We need your touch. Come cleanse us like a flood and send us out so the world may know you reign, you reign in us. So we need God to reign in our hearts that we might glorify him and then he will send us out so that everyone would know that he reigns in us, that he gives life. 
through Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your rich word. And Father, we pray that you would do miraculous work in us today. Lord, if there is any person who would say, I didn't get that before, that, that I was a sinner before God and that Jesus died for my sins and he came to abolish all of the idols in my life that I might have life in him, Lord, then we just pray that, that by your spirit you would show people their need for you and they would call out and say, God, be merciful to me. Give me sight. And Lord, we pray that, that you would move us, those who have spiritual sight, that we would see you more clearly, that we would follow you more truly, that we would be willing to step out in faith and say, you know what? God has changed my life and it's so good. It's so important that I cannot keep this to myself. I want to share it with you. God, teach us how to do this in a very uh, wise and loving manner. But, but God, we need boldness too because we're so prone just to keeping this, this good news to ourselves. So Lord, would you change us? Would you make us like Peter and the disciples and say, whatever it takes, Lord, we're following you. God, would you reign in us today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.